Welcome to Flywheel, your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi, and everything in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, you've come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave here with Capital K. We're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel. And Kit, we had on Green Jeff today, and honestly, the, the first thing I said to you after we filmed was, what a renaissance man. What a Web3 renaissance Literally. man. I, I can't think of another person with such depth of knowledge in both DeFi, DAOs, and NFTs. We hit not just each one, but we hit, we hit each one in like such like detail, um, in such nuance. Um, what do you think, Kit? Dude, I think there are very few people who you could have a conversation with, like a 45-minute in-depth conversation with about NFTs, and then transition almost like seamlessly into DeFi, and then from there just segue into DAOs. Like I was like very impressed with this guest uh, today, and and thank you, Green Jeff, for joining us. And I'm very happy how he actually was very open in how his you know product Vesper works. You know, obviously and that's my favorite part when talking about DeFi. Yeah, I think my favorite part was uh, him talking about the philosophy of the metagame, um, and yeah. actually like what it means, and like only like a few people should actually play the metagame, which we go into a lot within the podcast. I also really enjoyed um, his grand thesis of DAOs uh, because I haven't heard that one before. And you can tell that he's thought about it a lot. And, you know, we get to that more at the end of the podcast. But, you know, overall, I think this is definitely like an evergreen episode. And I'm excited to look back to see if our predictions about, you know, the yield on chain are right. Yep. Yep. That's yeah. We also talked about the real, real yield of ETH staking and how real, that would real. elevate. Yeah, how that would elevate the yield across all of DeFi. So I'm excited to see that play out as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to get this started. But before you do, before we do, don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube. We finally have over 500 subscribers. Thank you to everyone that has supported us throughout this journey. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Telegram at FlywheelPod. You can follow me on Twitter at DeFiDave. You can follow me at 0x capital underscore K, and let's dive right into the episode. All right. Yeah. Yo, Green Jeff, thanks for coming on. Um, dude, you're like one of like the most native DGEN, on-chain DGENs I know. And I say on-chain because you have your hand in everything. You have your hand in DeFi. You have your hand in NFTs. You're really interested in DAOs and DAO governance and... Um, a little bit of a pirate stuff per se. <laughs> and, um, you know, like every time I talk to you, I feel like I learned something new. So like, dude, super excited to have you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I have no other hobbies as my secret. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any other ho hobbies, but Hey, you have swag. I mean, look at the, look at that robe. Look at that. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like where did this look come from? Where did the green Jeff persona come from? Yeah, this, uh, by accident, really, I, bought this robe because I wanted to have it and I filmed the TikTok in the robe and the TikTok blew up and so now a few times a week I yell into the camera while I'm wearing this robe or I actually recently got another different colored Versace robe. People are saying if you're Ooh. if you're so rich why do you wear the same thing every episode? So I every TikTok so I had to uh I had to switch up the wardrobe a little bit. Yeah, how does uh TikTok compared to crypto Twitter and media like what do you find blows up on there 
and what do you find TikTok people are interested in? I would say the biggest difference with TikTok is it's so driven by algorithm, attention, consensus. Like, you really have to cater to the lowest common denominator to, <laughs> to like, have a good, like, video that blows up, which means you get, like, like consistently the worst signals out of TikTok. You're only going to get fed the shit coins at the Pico top because that's when people are hyping it up the most. Like, it... My, I'm kind of like counter brand on TikTok or counter culture in that I just like I talk about like things that I'm knowledgeable about and I also explain things that's bullshit that's going on in TikTok and some people like that but it's definitely a, a more I'm kind of capped on how high I can go on TikTok which is fine I'm not I'm not looking to sell out I'm not looking to shill baby Elon Doge coin <laughs> like some of my <laughs> counterparts on on TikTok uh, but do you see TikTok yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, that was it. Continue. Yeah, I was going to say, do you see TikTok more similar in its algorithm to Twitter and like kind of how outrage always like reaches the most impressions? Or is it more similar to YouTube um, in terms of like, oh, it's video, oh, it's like lowest co denominator content making it to the top? Or is it some mix of both or in, in its own lane? Oh, that's hard. I, I think I would have to say it's more like YouTube. Um, it, it, you're best off if you're just circle jerking what everyone else is because the algorithm knows what people want. The, the algorithm knows mm -hmm. that someone doesn't want to have someone tell them they're wrong and, and their, their investment's bad and, and they made a bad choice. They want to like get a, an endless stream of your shit coin is the best shit coin. And so I think in that regard, it's, it's very unlike crypto Twitter. I don't really spend much time on YouTube. Maybe that's how YouTube is. Maybe it's its own flavor of mental illness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because like with TikTok, I, you know, me and Sable Claire have been uh, producing videos on there to, to get more educational content, very basic content about fracks on there, like for TikTok, but also put it on YouTube and Twitter. But yeah, like TikTok's like real, you gotta go real basic. Like we gotta like dumb down the content not like dumb down, but yeah, dumb down the content mm -hmm. even even more so. And like the, the thing is with stuff like stable coins and fracks, it's complicated. It's hard. You need like a lot of knowledge, not just about like crypto, but about money in general. It just doesn't really, it's not really compatible with like TikTok at the moment right now. I, I guess like what's your take on like how like understanding fracks and like people like trying to learn about it? Yeah. So I do my best to take people off of TikTok. Um, you can't explain stablecoin theory in a 60-second video. Moreover, your TikTok should be 15 seconds. Your best viewage is if you're under 15 seconds. You, you can't elegantly explain anything in 15 seconds. Uh, what I try to do is allude to some deeper concept that I want to talk about and then say, I actually wrote an article on Substack, links in bio, go check it out, go subscribe. If you want to hear more, uh, stream of consciousness type stuff. Follow me on Twitter. I'd like to have a YouTube at some mm -hmm. point. Uh, there's a lot of things I'd like to do, but I, I really try to like uh, cater, find a new audience on TikTok, and then take them off TikTok. Which the algorithm probably doesn't like. Oh, uh, like TikTok's like your funnel. Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> so instead of OnlyFans, you take them to Substack. <laughs> Maybe I should do an OnlyFans, like a like a trading OnlyFans. Someone should make that. Yeah. 
I mean, like uh, modularized like modularized private groups. <laughs> I, I mean, I yeah, think no, you I think much like got the outfit for both, you know, OnlyFans. If you want to take it that way too, you know, I can keep them guessing. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. I was going to say, like, the big thing with TikTok, it's all about, I mean, with anything, it's about stories and narratives. And with TikTok, it's these bite-sized narratives that mm -hmm. confirm biases and beliefs. And that's what people are looking for in the shortest amount of time. And so, like, it's hard to explain things that don't have a narrative that mm -hmm. are complicated. And it takes, like, it takes, like, a different medium, like a podcast, mm -hmm. to explain that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I... I I can like just think like from my own experience, my best engagement is like, I just sold this stupid JPEG for tens of thousands of dollars. Fuck you guys. And all the NFT bros are like, look at how much money we're making with NFTs. We're going to be rich. Da, da, da. Now that, and that was like at the Pico top of, of NFT summer last year, um, which of course oh, dude, anyone who was using that video as a reason to get into more NFTs, granted, I was saying I'm dumping on you guys, but if someone's like, there's so much money I'm getting in, you know, that's when they're worse off, but that's when the most people want to oh. hear about it. Yeah. Dude, yeah, yeah. Speaking of, I was there with you NFT summer, uh, last year. I remember like, like getting back to LA and like, bright moments was popping off and like all the meetups were popping off and like everything was kind of like bubbling under the surface. Like, do you have any reflection of NFT summer in LA last year and kind of the evolution of NFTs since? Uh, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I have a lot of, uh, strong opinions about like normie NFT culture or like, you know, uh, the LA scene, at least where I was around, where you were around, was very much catered towards being beginner friendly, onboarding people, bringing people in. That's not necessarily where my views are. However, I will say mm -hmm. that it's very, very, very hard to curate good, engaged, sticky communities. Um, and there was something that, you know, some people were doing a good job in bringing people in and keeping them around, converting them. Uh, maybe maybe a, a real life element of the NFT culture is a big sticking point. I really haven't spent much time in like a fest land or like VCon or like, you know, a lot of those like very NFT bro centric mm -hmm. events um, mm -hmm. because I don't really vibe with that. But I think there's something to be said about for the people who do want that having the just different mediums to engage and interact and like, go beyond JPEGs on a screen, I think is probably a really powerful community building type thing. I think it, it's stuff that there's no reason why we can apply it to the, the Frax uh, universe. You're talking just before about Fraxmalist meetups in, in LA. I mean, why not? Why not? Yeah. There's definitely a community out here. I met like quite a few people, so who knows? Maybe something this week. <laughs> But yeah, I guess like thinking of like in terms of like fracks and onboarding people, like in, in meetups, like I've hosted a few meetups, you know, at different conferences, you know, kind of like side events and stuff. Um, and they've been like definitely growing, it's definitely promising. Um, the thing is with like frax meetups, it's definitely more like the intermediate advanced yeah. um, DeFi user and DeFi participant. It's because to find fracks, you actually have to do your research. It's not like 
Frax is like out there in the open and you're seeing like a million threads about it or you're seeing talks about it a lot, you really have to dig deep and find it. And like once you do, you have to like put in the work and do the homework. But I find that when people do put in the work and do do the homework, that they like feel like, oh wait, like I finally found something here and they get rewarded with like, wait, like they're actually building something here. And I think it's like really important to like once they like find, once they have that eureka moment, it's just like, you know, finding like the community, like us, like finding this podcast and finding like other people to talk about it with. Because if there isn't like an other to like bounce your ideas off of, then people kind of just lose interest and they question themselves. I, I guess like what from like your like vantage point in crypto land, like what have you seen about Frax and like have you noticed similar things about Frax? I think um, the biggest takeaway I have in my time in and around the Frax ecosystem is that Frax, uh, part of the culture, North Star guiding pillar, is the notion of cooperation, composability, having adjacent, similar, or uh, just cohesive projects that could work with Frax, making sure they do work with Frax. I think that's the best scalable way to grow a community because, for example, I'm into Frax, through my engagement on behalf of Vesper. Uh, I probably wouldn't be able to dedicate nearly as much time to Frax as I do if I didn't have that anchor through Vesper. Similarly, you need to have a lot of people internally that are really engaged and really uh, reactive to people who are coming in and keeping them engaged, keeping them happy, keeping them busy. If you instead um, export that responsibility to these other communities each community can do their own work with their own you know very core members and those very core members are now part of the frax community too by proxy there's there's no escaping it and i think that is a really great strategy um that will continue to work into the future the cross-pollination strategy yeah absolutely especially in the bear market when like people are just like people just aren't around anymore right a lot of the a lot of those people from LA summer are no longer doing crypto. <laughs> Being able to yeah, talk. Kit, what are your thoughts? No, no, I, I, Sorry. I'm just yeah, kind of like. No, I, I'm just really impressed by uh, Green Jeff's how he's almost like, you know, ambidextrous both on the NFT side and also the DeFi side, and it, it kind of led me to think like, how many of these folks are out there that are like, you know super deep into nfts flipping and you know doing all that stuff but also yield farming and degening everywhere like jeff from your experience have you seen like these two groups overlap a lot or not really i mean the answer is, is definitely not really um in my case i'm very selective in terms of the types of stuff mm. that interests me and i feel like i i have uh, the background to understand um, and for me, it's DeFi, DAO, NFT. I don't really do anything in the crypto space beyond those three. I respect privacy coins. I don't know how they work, and it's out of my repertoire. I respect oracles and bridges and you know a lot of these other stuff, but it's, it's out of my wheelhouse, and I really try to concentrate my efforts into the stuff I know, the stuff I like, the stuff I'm passionate about, um, and ignoring the the meta game, which is I, I have strong opinions about the notion of hopping across the different metas. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people Good like theorem. me. 
Let's hear the opinions on the meta game. Like, do you disagree with the meta game thesis? Would you rather just like stick with like one thing that you're passionate about and yeah. be- believe in? I think for 99.9% of people, even just the subset of people who are in crypto, the meta game is a terrible strategy. Uh, referencing what Kobe had put out, like I don't know, maybe close to a year ago now. Kobe, I- I'm gonna go on a little bit of a League of Legends tangent, if that's okay. Because in, in, yeah, the, wait, in wait, article, wait, Jeff, Kobe, Jeff, before you jump in, before you jump in, please explain what the meta game is for the audience at home. Yeah, sure. So the meta game is the notion that if you take a step back and you look at look at crypto from the meta, meaning what is hot, what is popular, what are what are people into? So, for example, right now there is a free NFT mint meta. There's a lot of projects that are coming out, and their whole thing is free NFT mints. Go ahead, mint it, do whatever you want with it. The notion of the metagame strategy is being cognizant of what's popular, what's hot, and jumping into it. So when GameFi was really hot, uh, whatever, six, nine months ago, you should have been doing GameFi. Now NFTs are kind of hot, jump back into NFTs. Privacy coins might be coming up with stuff going into Tornado Cash, jump into privacy coins. I think, I don't know if, I mean, Kobe didn't invent the metagame, but he uh, popularized the conversation around that as a trading strategy, and he likened it to playing League of Legends. League of Legends is a game where you have hundreds of different characters. It's highly competitive, and each character has uh, different stats that are, are buffed or nerfed, depending on how strong the character is. And with that, and with the items changing as well, there's different meta games in League of Legends. If you always play the character that's really powerful or a play style that's really powerful, you can achieve a higher rank. You can play more competitively. I think it's terrible advice for most every person for the same reason why Kobe is not good at League of Legends. Kobe is the 0.1 or the 0.01% of people who are super into crypto 24-7 they have the ability to command different metas as they pop up. Almost everyone that's not the case for. In the same way, Kobe doesn't play League of Legends all day long. He's a very low rank. He, he, uh, where he's at on the ladder is very low. He's silver, which is trash. I also play League of Legends, and I have only for the past decade played one character. I don't play that much, but every season... I can get up to a pretty high rank. I can get to platinum or diamond only playing one character because I'm really good at the character. I don't care what anyone else is doing. I can always be competitive with this one character, this one play style that I'm really into. I think that's a much more pragmatic strategy and it's a much more uh, uh, valuable strategy with the understanding that people have limited time. People have limited resources Find certain niches within crypto that you prefer and put all your energy into it. Don't try to hop around and chase each pump as it's happening. The people who are able to do that well, they can earn. That's probably the best way to earn the most money, but the risk reward is not there. Wow. Thank you for that. That's an excellent (laughs) explanation of the metagame, which I just kind of view as like, if we take like, if we take a step back, you know, step outside the box and kind of this like God's eye view of the crypto chessboard per se, it's like, what is going on? What are the trends happening? Is this trend actually a thing? And the thing is with trends, it's like, it's not actually a thing until it is. Like sometimes mm-hmm. people think they're playing a metagame, but then, then like, it's like, 
boom, like it, it ends up like burning out before it could actually be something. Or like they, you know, push something aside and then like, boom, it's like the biggest thing out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Like, I honestly couldn't agree more with your point of like, people have limited time and very few people are at the level of like me, you, Kit, Kobe, or whoever else like whose life day in and day out is living on chain. And so for most people, like, that's why it's like most people should not be active traders. Most people should just like hold BTC and ETH. That's like the long-term like meta game most people should be playing if like they want to like be in crypto, but like if they like want to like work and like be a part of like the community, like find like their, you know, find their like little niche, whether it's like for us, it's stable coins, you know, for you, I guess you're playing like a few different meta games right now. Like you said, DeFi, DAOs and NFTs, maybe for other people, it's, um, you know, bridges for other people. It's like infrastructure. Like there's so many like different routes and or DAOs. Like there's so many different routes people can go on. And the thing is, it's not written, written out yet. There's not like, oh, this is the crypto career book. Choose your path. It's like, no, you gotta like dig deep and find it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But, but Jeff, I got a question for you though. Like how would you say, recognize when you are playing the wrong meta game? Like, let me give you an example of say like DeFi has been bleeding against ETH for like forever, right? Yeah. And if, if you've been in DeFi and you just held, you know, a DeFi coins and that was like your game and you kind of stuck to it, you, you know, down bad, down horrendous. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> my my sushi attacked. bags, are, my, my sushi <laughs> bags are down bad. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm right. asking for a friend, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have, it, I, I've been a permable as long as I've been in crypto, almost a decade now. And I think that's, it is not so much of a problem as long as you understand that it's going to come back around eventually. I have 0% doubt in my mind that DeFi does not have a bigger future than what it is right now. The, the, just people using DeFi are there. There is a non-negligible number of people using DeFi at a non-negligible amount of money, doing things they can't mm -hmm. do in the traditional system, doing things better than what they can do in the traditional system, having access where they couldn't before. That's unstoppable. And so for me, I'm happy to keep averaging and accumulating and investing my time into DeFi, even though it's been bleeding for whatever, 18 months now or whatever the crazy, crazy number is. It's been years. I feel like it's been <laughs> bleeding, to be honest. It's been literally years. Yeah. I mean, it's ironic because DeFi was the, was the beginning of on-chain activity with DeFi summer. It paved the way for NFTs and DAOs. And now it's kind of, in terms of both like, mainstream attention and price like it's kind of gotten left behind in relative terms to eth um which is like pretty like ironic like i definitely um consider myself a DeFi romantic like yourself like i do think like this is just a start it's gonna you know i think the whole world is gonna be built on these DeFi rails and i'm waiting i always tell people like i'm waiting for the day not to have like wraps like agreements that are like put on chain through some oracle and like i'm waiting for the like agreement agreements to be actually nfts and that they're signed and then you can do like interesting stuff on chain um we're just not there yet yes but, but yeah. it will happen it's just like a matter yeah yeah it will happen and then like like but it's just a matter of like you know when and like certain just like things 
first slowly all at once, like you gotta be patient, but then when it happens, it happens like so fast. It's like a rapid or, you know, like going downstream or some, something mm -hmm. like that. If I were to have an example yeah. of like all things happening at once would be like what happened with um, pseudo uh, swap and Xmon, right? Like I, I think um, Owen and the gang has been building pseudo since like last September, just quietly behind the scene, just yeah, forever you know, heads down building, yeah. forever building, right? I, I remember talking with them last September, but then out of nowhere, you know, pseudo launched, and then you know, Xmon's price today is just like ludicrous. Right, I feel like people are finally picking up on the meta of like, hey, NFT AMMs are like a thing. Um, but yeah, Jeff, I, I want to hear your, your thoughts on that, like this new narrative of NFT AMMs. Yeah, uh, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, Let's hear them. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the debate right now, just at least what's, what's taking the mm -hmm. front and center stage is... Uh, is it okay to bring in someone like a pseudoswap that's not paying royalties to artists? Um, I think the answer is yes, it's fine. Uh, the NFTs that are traded on pseudoswap are all coins with JPEGs. Uh, they're, they're dominated by their floor price. They're, they're traded against a chart. The liquidity is you know, pretty fungible, at least at the, at the lower tier NFTs in a collection. No reason why traders are getting knocked five, 7.5, 10% total. No reason why OpenSea gets 2.5% of every transaction or 2% on LookShare. Um, the, the debate to me seems silly because you have all these people who are really into artists, one of one NFTs saying we need to pay artists royalties. You don't trade one of ones on PseudoSwap. Yeah. <laughs> You can't, you can't, it, it's, it's four collections that are built around the notion that there is some, at least, um, somewhat liquid floor, meaning that you might have rare pieces in a collection, but most of them track around the same value. The value of the NFT is much more so, uh, access to the community, the perks, whatever, not because my monkey has a bandana instead of you know it, which is totally different from the art scene no one is trading one of one artwork as fungible tokens even if it's within the same artist like i for example i'm a really big fan of robness i've been a fan of him for ages and ages and he does some one of ones he does some um open editions he does some uh limited editions no one's trading robness nfts like shit coins <laughs> you know there, each piece is unique to that piece. Uh, um, so, I, you know, I think at PseudoSwap, they've done some really cool things. I've been a big fan of NFTX for a while now. I'm, I hold some of their uh, floor DAO token. I've been involved in some of the, the floor votes. Uh, I'm an NFTX user. Uh, I mean, I've been into NFTs as technology since since pretty much the beginning, and it's it's a technology, and there's a lot of different applications, and I think it's great that PseudoSwap is making advances in elevating what you can do with the technology. Yeah, like the fact that they decided, like, yo, we're going to cut out royalties altogether and, like, cut out the open CV whatsoever it was it kind of like it took some like real like 
first principles thinking to come to that realization. It was like, wait, this is like actually taking like a significant amount out for traders. And once you come back around and, and say like, wait, these are just all coins with pictures on them, like that it makes complete sense. Yeah, I mean, I hate giving OpenSea 2.5% every trade. I, I, for, you know, for the service you get, I think it's ridiculous. Um, and I, yeah. I don't, I don't I, think it hurts artists who are most dependent on their royalties. I don't think it changes anything for them. And for our viewers at home, can you explain how Pseudoswap works and how it's different compared to like a traditional marketplace like OpenSea or LooksRare? Yeah, so it, the, in high-level terms, it basically re, refungibilizes the NFTs. So essentially what that means is uh, if you have an NFT in a collection, if I have a board ape, for example, my board ape has a number, board ape one, two, three, four. It has specific traits to it. Basically, what Pseudoswap does is it allows someone who holds the NFTs to pool them with other NFTs. Now we have a pool of whatever, 100 board apes, and I don't own board ape one, two, three, four anymore. I just own one board ape out of this set of 100. And if you say that all of these NFTs that have basically been wrapped into the, the pseudo swap market, they're all one in the same, then you can have uh, an AMM that looks more like Uniswap or SushiSwap where people can trade up or down, they can trade fractions, you can have a price curve. Um, you don't have to trade individually with the one NFT, with the one collector. You can access the global liquidity all at once. Wow. So it makes NFTs as fungible as tokens. It, it, re, it refungies you know, the non-fungies. <laughs> it refungies the non-fungies. And like when people like put them in the liquidity pool, do they get like ERC20 LP tokens back? You know, or is it an NFT because it... You know, yeah. I actually, I don't know the mechanics around Pseudoswap uh, in particular. If it's like NFTX, um, which I'm more familiar with than basically it wraps the the nft into an erc20 token and then that token can be traded like any other token um and if you buy a fraction of that token you're buying a fraction of the nft mm. do, wow. do you think pseudoswap so is a uh a correct direction forward for the nft space as a technology as a as a function of nfts because i remember that was one of the biggest complaints of nfts is like their e-liquidity you think this is a, a right mm -hmm. step forward or is it just you know more slot machines in the casino i think it's the right direction for one specific application of nfts which is more uh, engaging shit coins, really. Um, it's, you know, I, I think the notion of participating in tokenized communities is really cool and social investing. It, it's people since the beginning of time have always organized themselves into groups and those groups have value and being able to assign liquid ownership to that, uh, opt in participation to the community. I think that, I think it's a, it's one of the biggest selling points of NFTs, but it's not all NFTs. I don't think pseudo swap is going to make a tangible impact on the other stuff that NFTs are doing. 
NFTs as a replacement for content creators that alleviates them from traditional models that are predatory. I don't think PseudoSwap uh, uh, infringes upon those other buildouts. I, I think the NFT space can be both. Interesting. So PseudoSwap is good for this one part of NFT mm -hmm. land, which is these collections where the, every, all the pieces of art are close to the floor price but isn't necessarily great for, let's say, creators that have a creator NFT for one of one pieces. Like, it may, now it makes more sense why like there's no royalties then, because it's like mm -hmm. there's no it's like all coins, shit coins don't have royalties to the person that deployed the contract. It's like <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah, and like if a creator, even if a creator's having a collection, if the collection's more focused around okay, redeem this NFT for X experience or for, you know, different, if each NFT has more stuff assigned to it, that uh, hinders the ability to refungy the NFT because, um, you know, for example, if I have an NFT of a creator I like and they say that uh, if you hold an NFT once a month, you can uh, FaceTime me or play a game of League of Legends with me or, or whatever. Um, and I want to own the NFT because I want to do stuff with the creator. I don't want to put my NFT into this pool and potentially when I take it out, I'm going to take out an NFT that's already been redeemed. I'm going to want to make sure I keep my NFT and get my perks and privileges. PseudoSwap isn't, isn't defeating that market. It's a, you know, it's a different set of use cases. Got it. Okay. Got I, I, I want to take a step Where? back from, oh, go ahead, Dave. No, you go ahead. I said I just want to take a step back from the the NFT talks and kind of refocus around like DeFi. Um, can you share a little bit more about your uh, strategy role over at Vesper and how is it like getting involved um, in like a DeFi DAO? So uh, I am head of strategy at Vesper Finance, uh, which is a, a DeFi yield aggregator, which basically means you deposit uh, your different major uh, Ethereum tokens stable coins, wrap Bitcoin, Frax. Um, and we have these uh, non-custodial smart contract pools that take everyone's funds and deploy it to different strategies where it can go out and earn yield. So for example, we have a Frax pool where you deposit Frax tokens. Um, it wraps those into LP positions on Curve, stakes them in Convex, and then auto compounds the rewards, the CRV, the CVX payout swaps it into more fracks and then compounds it into the position. Um, our focus in particular is that um, all these projects are figuring out ways to be more capital efficient, to offer more for their users. And Vesper is kind of like a DeFi yield engine that other projects can plug into. When we first launched, we, we launched upon this notion of let's make DeFi easy for everyone. Um, and with that, we uh, had a focus on really conservative, sustainable strategies. One click set and forget, you know, deposit your funds and you can leave them there till the end of time if you want. Multiple uh, audits for each strategy. We wanted to make the most secure, bulletproof, easy, sleep at night yield experience that we could offer. What we found out is that there is not really a market of DeFi babies. Whoever is out there and has a MetaMask wallet mm -hmm. and is comfortable with using DeFi, they're going to chase the high yields. I'm, I'm 
the head of strategy. I'm the one who picks our strategies. I go and I chase the high yield. What we built is much better for projects that, okay, how do I up our APY? How do I do more with our treasury? How do I offer the next the next level of service to our users without compromising on security on, um, you know, no one wants the worst case scenario is your project. It, it, there's an exploit or something funds are lost and Vesper is a great option for different protocols, entities, uh, exchanges, whoever to pass on uh, better yield on top of the AP, the TVL they already have without having to um, without having to introduce too much more smart contract risk um, possibility of loss um, and so one of the projects we've worked with is frax uh, we have a pool like I said where you deposit frax tokens um, and it's basically like an on-chain savings account you hold the frax tokens it goes out it earns you yield it compounds it's good for the for the frax protocol because we're taking, uh, we're taking yield earn and we're converting it into more fracks. We're supporting the peg. We're buying back fracks. Um, and with that, we have a, a gauge that earns uh, FXS tokens. So just like how they have emissions going to Uniswap pools and Aave and all these different ones, they have emissions going towards um, the Vesper pool. That pool is also integrated into Convex. So Convex holds a bunch of locked uh, frac shares. They can use that to uh, boost the TVL so it gets more earnings. And the result is we have this, uh, this product that is now integrated into a few, a few different layers. You deposit to Vesper, you earn Frax tokens. You also earn VSP tokens. You also earn FXS tokens, and then you can plug it into Convex, and you can double the FXS and the VSP you earn. Um, we also have uh, we have bribes that we're doing with Pitch uh, Pitch Foundation each week. So it's it's a, a product that we built once, and now it's integrated into all these different protocols. And that's mm-hmm. that's really the angle we're going for. Is you know we might not be able to convince someone to take lower yield with us versus higher yield on whatever Shiba Inu uh, market, whatever lending future perpetual, whatever. But what we can say is, okay, you're already a user in this other protocol. Um, let's let's boost, let's supercharge your experience a little bit. I believe we are with all of those different levels. We're the best, uh, at least the best. No impermanent loss APY on Frax at the moment. I think you get like right now like twelve percent, um, which is pretty good. And we're able to offer that because we're. It's not just Vester. It's Vester plus all these other. Uh, stuff built on top and alongside it. Interesting. So you guys have really plugged into the uh, Frax ecosystem, which is awesome to see, whether it's with Pitch doing vote incentives or with uh, Convex having, you know, a gate and, uh, you know, having the gauge supercharged on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing all the right things to be a uh, positive sum player within Knock Frax. On wood. Um, so knock on wood <laughs> so like what are some things you'd like to do in the future with Rax? yeah so um we have a few things in the pipeline um the most uh immediate one is um one of our other products under the vesper umbrella so what i described is our uh our flagship grow product which is deposit your coin it goes on earns yield it compounds into more yield 
you have another product called uh, Vesper Earn, which takes your yield and converts it to another output. So for example, mm. um, I hold a lot of ETH and I want to have like a stable operating income. I deposit ETH, my ETH earns yield, the yield is converted to USDC or FRAX or DAI or whatever, um, and I get a stream of stablecoin. Something really cool that Earn enables is it's kind of like a wrapped, uh, wrapped yield-bearing token on whatever the deposit is. In the normal uh, grow pools or like what you would see with an LP token or a urine vault token is the value of the, the deposit share will increase over time as you're compounding. With an earn token, it always tracks one-to-one. I deposit uh, my ETH that earns stablecoin. I can always withdraw it for my one ETH deposit voucher. I can always withdraw it for one real ETH. What that enables is this really cool new primitive of natively yield farming AMMs. So if you take um, that wrapped ETH token, let's say the wrapped ETH token is earning FRAX, and you pair the wrapped ETH deposit voucher with FRAX on an AMM, now all your ETH is earning yield while it's sitting there, and it's earning yield and it's adding FRAX. So the liquidity providers are earning yield while they're also earning trading fees. There's arbitrage every time the yields um, realize there's also arbitrage if, if people want to go in and out of the pool versus our vesper pools um the the wrapped eth token might not always trade one-to-one with real eth but it's always worth one-to-one with real ETH. and with that we are launching a test case um with saddle finance which is a curve like mm-hmm. amm stable swap and what we're launching is a pool where you deposit frax tokens and you earn um, FRAX base pool LP tokens on Saddle Swap. And so what we're doing with Saddle is we're making a new meta pool, which is 50% of this wrapped FRAX token, 50% of the FRAX base pool they already have. And so basically now you have a still a stable swap pool. Wrapped FRAX is always worth one FRAX, but now 50% of your LP is also yield farming. So you get... Whatever whatever the, the FRAX is natively earning on Vesper, 5% or whatever. I think last I checked, it was like five. The, just the FRAX compound is 5.5%. So half of that is um, earning and yielding more, uh, more tokens and then adding into the LP. And that's something I'm really excited about because um, like Curve, for example, as great as Curve is, there's so much idle capital. And their the ROI on the TVL they have is so low. If they were using this as a standard, it would increase the the revenue on their TVL by magnitudes. Um, and it's you know it's not for the user. It's not exactly the same experience because you have this you're getting this wrap token. There's an extra step involved, but if that was if that was used at scale, it's it's easy enough to add a step in that's also going to unwrap one inch can, you know, integrate it or whatever. Uh, so that should be coming to market. Um, wow. Let's see, probably two or three weeks from, from today, um, just based on deployment timelines. And, um, you know, if people like that, that's ideally a test case for more pools we can create, um, around frac swap. Um, 
particularly. Wait, so. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, particularly, particularly if you have, um, if you have earn pools that pay out in frax tokens, you can have ETH frax pairs or whatever frax pairs that are also buying up more frax while that liquidity is posted. So it's like, it's an easy win for increasing APY on a, on an LP position. It's an easy win for supporting the frax peg. Um, it, it, it's a great uh, experiment in positive sum Ponzi-nomics. <laughs> Ponzi. Okay, so, so, <laughs> I was say, so, if I can, yeah. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. It will be a, yeah. the same yeah. as if, um, let's say I took ETH and then I put it onto um, Compound and I got CETH and then I paired CETH with, say, USDC. Mm -hmm. And then that is now the, uh, you know, my CETH is obviously earning yield yeah. on compound, but it's also providing liquidity on the CETH USDC pool. Mm -hmm. is, is that what it is? Almost, but it's a little bit different because CETH is, uh, is an interest bearing token. So whatever right. the rate is between ETH and CETH, CETH is going to keep increasing. Changes. Um, mm -hmm. For a non-stable pair, that's not as big of a deal. But for example, if you're doing, if if you if you have a stable swap uh, pair, uh, and you want everything to track one to one or, or track to a dollar, that mm -hmm. becomes uh, it, it, it makes the product more more obsolete over time or uh, lessened experience right, right. over so time. It's, it's kind of like the geom then, right? Like 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 that type of wrapper. So that's always one to one, and it's never actually, you know, increasing in in quantity. Yes, I think. Yes, if I if Wait, I so, understand Geom okay. correctly. So cool. let's, okay. Let's roll, let's go back for a second. Yeah. Um, so with the saddle pool, mm -hmm. I want to like make sure I get this mm -hmm. right. It's half frax, half frax base pool. Mm -hmm. Is that frax base pool? being staked in like convex or something earning the, yield or the frax, something earning the, yield the frax half is being staked um so oh the it, frax half is being yeah staked. so okay. the, the meta pool is actually wrapped frax to frax baseball and the wrap frax is, oh. is the vesper earn deposit token that's going out earn, oh. earning yield on convex and then converting the yield into frax base pool lp shares oh okay so the saddle pool is wrap frax doing this Vesper strategy mm -hmm. and one half. And the yield earned from that one half is being put into the frax base pool on the other half. Exactly. Whoa. And so now you have this pool. I guess like what is the advantage of this pool is the strategy that you can deploy? Like do you see people actively trading this pool? Or is this really like a, a, a pool for strategists and DAOs? Um, it'll be a little bit of both. There will be trading activity at the very least. There'll be arbitrage, uh, because the mm -hmm. pool itself is earning and realizing the yield. So, um, every time the, a rebound happened and yield is earned, the number of fracks in the pool stays the same. The number of LP tokens increases the fracks base will LP it's trading against. So fracks will blip above a dollar. So people at the very least will trade it back down to a dollar and realize the arbitrage. Um, but I think it's more important for um, someone like a Frax or an Olympus or uh, some project that has very strong protocol-owned liquidity 
now it's protocol owned liquidity that still does exactly what you need it to exactly what you wanted to and it's earning revenue or it you know it's it's building up more lp for you yeah like a lot of DAOs, like if they have stable coins or looking for a choice of stable coins and they're looking for a strategy with their treasury this sounds perfect <laughs> it sounds like pretty the only, the only hard part is is like going through the steps to like i wouldn't even call it hard but just like the only friction would be to like actually like stake the lp and do all the steps there but like once you do then you know, it's it's only logical for like, exactly. you know, sound treasury management. Um, cool, cool. Um, I wanted to like bring it to your thoughts on speaking of strategies, your thoughts on Fraxland, and have you looked into that at all? What your thoughts are on Fraxland, and if you see Vesper doing any strategies with that in the future? Yeah, I mean, we're really big on like a lot of our a lot of our TVL routes through different on-chain loans uh, because it's an easy way to get from a uh, low-yield opportunity token to a high-yield opportunity token. Mm-hmm. Lending rates are like typically pretty low on everything. And so, for example, we can take... Uh, right now, we support Aave, Compound, Maker, a handful of Compound forks across Mainnet and Avalanche. And it's pretty easy for us to support new tokens when whatever supported collateral can borrow a stable point for cheap, for example. Uh, the Vesper architecture is very composable into itself. If we have, uh, if we have uh, on any peer-to-peer lending market, if an output token, a token you can borrow, is supported by Vesper, we can now support any collateral token that they support by just routing a strategy that says, uh, for example, borrow Frax and then deposit into the best for Frax pool. So we can take all these different collateral tokens and just funnel it all with the same strategy into our Frax pool, into our USDC pool, uh, into our, you know, our whatever pool, and then manage all of those uh, positions through the one pool. And so, you know, if the yield, if the yields there were absolutely going to be, uh, farming on on fraxland if the uh, if the if the deposit and borrow rates are competitive and i'm sure they will be uh, every you know everything out of everything that comes out of frax is very polished and very um mm-hmm. in tune with the market so it, it's it's on our uh our very long list of uh, protocols we want to support it's definitely there i just wanted to double click onto the risk element of um, mm-hmm. your assessment of the strategies, right? Normally with mm-hmm. Frax, you could, you know, pretty much bank on the fact that the devs are like, you know, SEAL Team 6 devs, that they went the extra mile to make sure it's safe and secure before like other, you know, protocols and, and yield. Like how do you go about risk assessing them? Yeah, so there's, there's a handful of different uh, components into our risk assessment at different stages and in er- the earning yield process. One is uh, we have risk parameters for the protocol itself that we interface with. So, for example, uh, a compound or an Ave or a, you know whoever we support, we look at things like time in market, uh, TVL. We look at the auditing that went into those protocols. We look at the team. We look at um, how administrative privileges are delegated. So, for example, 
it's this protocol um dow controlled by the token holders like uh like compound is where we don't really have to worry about a rogue governance type thing going through or is there one person who has the keys to the kingdom and if that's the case we probably don't interact with them um then in terms of um building out the strategy we get two audits on every new um new strategy uh let's see what's the right way to say it every time there's a new code base or we we have a strategy where we're doing something new we get two audits so for example if something is a direct fork from compound we might not need to get a separate set of audits but if they have different code changes or we, if we have to do something different uh then we'll get audits on there or if we're building something new on top of uh, an existing strategy set um from there we have a pretty robust um internal auditing process of running things on a on a local fork into running things on a mainnet dev only alpha into a public beta and then into a mainnet production um we also have different risk tiers on the pools themselves we have conservative pools aggressive pools and orbit pools conservative pools are um more so on the back burner because everything under Vesper, frankly, is conservative. But um, the differentiation between aggressive pools and orbit pools is orbit pools, we might handle more exotic assets. We might handle more exotic protocols. Um, aggressive pools are more battle hardened and they have more. Um, they're all still they're all still very conservative, but the aggressive pools have have uh, more risk assurance for for users. Um, and then the last thing is that um, for strategies that are deployed, each pool is basically um, a front pool that maps to a library of back pool strategies. So essentially, um, when people deposit their their or when they deposit or withdraw, they go into this front pool lobby buffer, and then it maps to all these different strategies that have different weights assigned to them. And so we can feather up and feather down weights depending on where the yield's at. And with that, we have some automated uh, monitoring that shows fluctuations in yield, um, just the absolute values of where's the high yield, where's the low yield. And also, um, we get alerts if yield fluctuates. So if one strategy where we have a lot of our TVL, the yield's coming down, coming down, coming down. We're going to make sure that we don't let the yield get negative. We'll we'll uh, pull out and pull into another strategy that we have deployed. Um, so yeah, we have a very robust security practice in place. The last uh, element that I talked about earlier is the composability. We're not reinventing the wheel on each new pool. We're taking contracts that we know works that we're already using, and we're we're funneling more activity into those those same pools, those same contracts. God, do you guys have like a maximum limit on a strategy? Like, hey, we're only going to put X million mm-hmm. or X percent of the fracks into mm-hmm. this strategy. Like, do you have any of those parameters? Yes, we do have those parameters. Um, we don't always use them. But for example, if we are using a new protocol for the first time, we will start with a very small percentage of funds, like 2% and make sure it's make sure it's working and then very slowly feather it up um, each pool has absolute limits um, that we can toggle right now none of the pools have uh, limits in place 
-hmm. And then each strategy has um, percent weight and absolute weight limits as well. Good. Do you guys split it across different chain? Are you guys multi-chain right now or mainly mainnet? We are multi-chain, mostly mainnet and some avalanche and a little bit of polygon. Got it. Do you guys have parameters around there? Like, hey, we're only going to keep X percent on poly, X percent on avalanche and, you know, Mm -hmm. maintain liquidity at kind of like all times? Yeah. So right now, um, the contracts on each protocol are are on each chain are independent. So if I'm depositing to the avalanche pool, I'm only interacting with avalanche stuff. Um, On our tech roadmap, we have some cross-chain strategies um, in the workings. And once that's deployed, it will it will look like that essentially that um, we might take 20% of the ETH TVL and, and take it over from mainnet to Avalanche if the Avalanche APY is significantly higher. But um, also because of just being able to access liquidity, we would never say, okay, we're taking all of our, we're taking our entire pool on X chain and we're, t- we're sending it all to Y chain. Got it. And so what's your take on the uh, emerging real yield uh, trend that we see on Arbitrum? You see, you know, Umami and GMX and now uh, TracerDAO, now Mycelium in the ring um, with this one specific uh, GLP strategy um, that's Delta neutral. Um, I guess, like, what what do you think of that? And it's like Vesper considering similar. It's interesting. I mean, Vesper is definitely real yield, right? You're, you're depositing, uh, you're depositing whatever token you have and you're earning more of it. It's not, it's not inflation that we've printed from nothing. We we can't print, uh, wrapped Bitcoin and ETH and fracks and, you know, (laughs) so like the, the products themselves are all real yield. They've been real yield from the start. Um, we do have BSP incentives on top of that, but um, those incentives now across almost all pools are very small. A majority of the yield earned is is um, underlying strategies. The VSP token itself, you can deposit and you can earn yield on it. That's a revenue share. So there's fees assigned mm-hmm. to, to the pools and some of those fees buy back VSP tokens and deliver it back to depositors that's real yield as well. I, I understand there's, and, and like the real yield messaging, there's some element of like, for example, I know Joe's one of the big ones because you can d- deposit Joe and you can earn USDC. They're not paying you more Joe, they're paying USDC, but mm-hmm. it's the same. It, the, the underlying message is we're paying you real revenue or, or real yield. Um, we're not just inflating tokens and giving you free inflation so it's like what are the it, fees? it's interesting mm-hmm. oh yeah mm-hmm. um it, it's, it's just it, it's interesting that we've been a real yield protocol but but it's like okay are we supposed to like attach ourselves to this meme or do we just keep doing what we're doing you know it's it's like a weird marketing uh type consideration um do you want to attach yourself to this new meta that has appeared in the wild do, do we want to play the metagame? <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it's it's a it's a conversation that we had recently um, internally, and I'm sure one that that will continue. Um, in terms of the the fees that we have, um, each pool has uh, what we call a universal fee of two percent, 
And it's basically a fee that is streamed out of the yield earn only. So we never touch mm-hmm. your principal ever. No deposit, no withdrawal fees, no um, set performance fees oh. that could take take into your principal. Uh, the universal fee of 2% is saying that we will take, um, we will stream yield as fees up to 2% APY and we cap it at 50%. So if a pool is earning basically 4% the inflection point. If, if a pool is earning 4% or more, we take uh, an amount that's equal to 2% of the, of the TBL streamed out of the yield. If it's less than 4%, we take half of whatever the pool earns. Got it. And so you don't have like that. I haven't looked into urine in a while, but you know how urine charges like a performance fee? Do you guys have a mm-hmm. performance fee or just the 2% universal? Just the 2%. So Yearn has the two Whoa. the two percent management and the and the performance fee on top, and there's yeah. no cap on on the management fee. So if a pool's earning two percent, they're taking two percent. I actually I, I know they're they're doing a lot of tokenomics revenue overhaul. They have a proposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what stage it's at, but the there's a revenue update proposal that looks a lot like what our new because our universal fee is new within the past few months. Um, they have a new revenue plan that looks a lot like what we recently put together. Uh, <laughs> I'll just I'll oh, joining the Vesper Meta. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I yeah. got another question in terms of uh, user behavior. Have you noticed? Yeah. Sorry, Dave. This is just super fascinating to me. I'm, I'm just gonna no, ball hog no, for a sec. This, this, um, no, this is like your court. This is like your specialty. So go <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, like. For the user behaviors, have you noticed them uh, kind of setting and forgetting, or are they kind of like jumping around a lot themselves, even? Yeah, good question. Um, so when we first launched, um, people were definitely jumping around a lot, and that was when gas was still uh, cheaper. This would have been January. Mm-hmm. We launched in January 2021. When we first launched, people were jumping mm-hmm. around a lot. We were also offering really good yield because our emissions were really high and our token price was really high. What we saw mm-hmm. was a lot of people were depositing when there was nothing to do and something crazy came up. They would withdraw, go farm that thing for a week, and then come back. There was um, – mm-hmm. oh, what was the name wow. of the farm? There, uh, These hoes ain't loyal. There, there was a farm <laughs> – Yeah. These degens ain't loyal. I mean, well, that's why no one does it. No one does the emissions farm anymore. But there was a protocol – I can't remember the name. But it was um, it got like four billion in TV on like the first week, and like um, Alameda was farming t- it. Oh wait, 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 wait! Big big dump protocol, yeah, BDP. Yeah, BDP. Big data protocol. Big data protocol, right? And it was like a complete dump. Oh my god, I remember that. So yo, that that was so funny. Yeah, it was just a farm. So we had when big data protocol launched, and it right, and it was like just it was just stupid, like the amount that they were paying yeah. out. Um, we saw like half our TBL leave and, and start farming, like literally just withdraw from Vesper, deposit to big data protocol. And then four days later when the yield dried out, they all came back and a bunch more people came back to, we actually over the course of the week, increased TVL from everyone leaving and then everyone coming wow. back. Um, which is actually something that we built around initially was, uh, we called it like tavern for DGENs, like. When there's nothing like come here, rest, like let your coin sit easy. Oh, when I like you, that. When you have like an adventure, when you have a quest, go out and quest and come back. Um, 
but then gas got so high and so nice. people weren't really doing that anymore interest went way down uh-huh. now it's definitely much more of a, of a set and forget type experience um which is more suited towards um what i talked about originally uh right mm-hmm. now we're trying to target other protocols as our users um which is that sticky set and forget tdl Dude, I remember BDP because I was like X sushi at the time, and like the X sushi percentage went up from like four percent to like sixteen, <laughs> like something ridiculous. It was just like, <laughs> yeah, those the farming days back then. BDP. Um, <laughs> BDP. I was gonna ask you how like how has like yield evolved over the past year? Um, do you see it trending down? Do you see um, do you see it trending like? sideways trending up like where's the yield nowadays on chain is mm-hmm. there still yield is there still opportunities um should is it something more like for big players such as DAOs to take mm-hmm. advantage of or can like the little guy the everyday humble farmer take advantage of these opportunities on chain yeah so i mean throughout vesper's existence the yield has definitely decreased and it's definitely concentrated but i i don't think that's a uh permanent trend um most of the yield from a year to two years ago was people uh farming ownership in projects the notion that there's all these different forks and there's all these different projects launching and this is a great way to to get some early allocation the project um as the markets have cooled off a lot and as vc money has winded down a lot those same opportunities aren't there anymore which is dragged the rest of the yield down today most of the yield is in curve convex on stable coins um mm-hmm. in lido on e and then in just like random boutique stuff but there's a few trends coming in the opposite direction i i think over time we will on a long enough time scale i think yield will consistently steadily increase um for a few reasons protocols are getting more complex uh Fork, fork meta, if we want to call it a meta, means that there's a, every time the market determines there's like something interesting to build out, we're going to get a thousand iterations of it, and we're going to get one of those iterations is going to be the best one, the most efficient, the most complex. I mean, Frax is mm-hmm. a, is a product of of the thousand countless stablecoin forks, right? Frax survived, a handful of others survived, everything else died, and we have better stablecoins as a result. That's going to continue happening, and we're going to continue getting um, higher yield because there's better working complex projects that emerge from it. A trend that I'm seeing right now is leverage yield. Um, Abracadabra, Mm. despite all their controversy, Mm. is really the leader there. Um, If you forget MIM as a stablecoin and assess MIM as a as a, a synthetic uh, synthetic collateral for leverage. The, the killer app with Abracadabra is their, their DGEN box, they call it, where basically I mm-hmm. deposit a dollar of some interest-bearing position, like a Yearn vault token or a um, Stargate uh, LP token. And mm-hmm. for every dollar I deposit, I can flash mint and dump up to 49 MIM. And now I have... 50x leverage yield farming they can take really huge performance fees out of that because you know they they could take uh, right now on starting they take a 50 percent performance fee 
but they could take a 90% performance fee because it, it, out of the whatever the 4% APY Stargate gives you, they could take 90% of it and they're going to give you 50x the 10% you have left. Um, and so there's, and then the, the, the challenge is you have to maintain the MIM peg. If MIM's under a dollar, you can't, um, you can't provide additional leverage. Um, there's an interesting mechanic of everyone shorting MIM who's doing it. So MIM's, the, the peg is strong. You can enter, you can take on a lot of leverage. The peg goes down to 99 cents. You can buy up a bunch of MIM, close out your position and, and realize a huge APY. Um, there's a lot of projects that are doing leverage yield farming. There's Timeless Finance out of 88 MPH. There is uh, Gearbox. There is, uh, uh, there's a bunch. I mean, Alchemix really is leverage yield farming w with conservative leverage allowance. They just don't brand mm -hmm. themselves as that. Um, and so the just down the leverage yield farm rabbit hole is, is now it's very easy to see a, a place where even if the naked yield on tokens on stable coins or ether whatever is going down to low single digits they're bringing that back up into the teens and the 20s because they're able to figure out a way to uh mm -hmm. to work out leverage on that so more and more stuff like that is going to continue to get built that's going to continue to drive uh apy up I also think the merge is going to be massive for increasing DeFi APY. Um, and my thesis is uh, inspired by what you see on Avalanche. Avalanche AVAX is a token that you can stake and you can get good APY. And that kind of drives all of Avalanche ecosystem APY up. It's a smaller DeFi landscape, but the yields there are all really good. It's because it's it's underpinned by a, a network token, AVAX, that is natively earning so much percent APY if you're staking it. With ETH, mm -hmm. when we go to the merge, you're going to be getting whatever, 4% uh, on the low end. I've seen estimates that with tips and everything up to 18% on your ETH. I doubt that'll be the case. But you will have a network token that natively is earning good APY it's very liquid through something like stake ETH. It's very integrated in uh, staking positions are very integrated into DeFi applications like Aave, uh, Maker, uh, Curve, Convex. And with that, I think post-merge, you're going to have ETH pulling up the APY of everything else on, on the network uh, because- Rising tide, let's all shift. I think, I really think so. Um, so I think, I think we might be at, call it the, these past six months like the all-time low DeFi yield until the end of time or at least you know for the foreseeable future um i, I feel mm. very strongly that yield's going to be going up obviously i'm biased i work for a project that delivers yield to people so if i'm if i'm <laughs> wrong i'm in serious i'm in serious trouble but you know i i think i think the merge is is going to be a massive uh, a massive event for DeFi, which I don't hear a lot of people talking about. No, I don't. It's funny, like, uh, me and my friends have been talking, and one of my friends, uh, he had this really interesting idea with Frax ETH and AMOs that you can have, like, a Frax ETH AMO, and, you know, on the, you know, parallel to it, you can have more experimental AMOs. And if the AMOs have a yield or a percentage that's lower than the Frax ETH AMO, you can just close the AMO and just like bring all the assets back into the Frax ETH one. 
so instead of what you're saying is instead of at like the Frax protocol level with Frax ETH, this is just all of DeFi. Like this is like literally the uh, baseline. Whatever the average ETH yield is, is the baseline till the end of time. Yeah, exactly. Or some driven of that because uh, you're going to be able to borrow ETH and you're going to be able to use ETH as collateral to borrow other stuff, you know, yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. I, I, uh, there, there's going to be a lot of new yield opportunities. And I think that if that if that is the case, then maybe we have a, a very strong DeFi rally powered by higher yield for everyone. Now all these tokens are going up, all these revenues are going up and we could have another um, another flywheel uh, kick in kicking off with you know that that four percent whatever that's underpinning now now frax is popping off now the frax ap frax ecosystem apys are popping off now the vesper apys are popping off you know it it's all things are much more integrated than they were the first time around we could definitely see everything popping off together and making everything pop off higher and harder and and longer and yeah (laughs) yeah it's interesting like Especially with FraxLend coming out, like all the different, you can basically build a DGen box with FraxLend itself. Um, it's be interesting what like people come up with with FraxLend, especially with its customizability. And you know, it's not necessarily like over collateralized. You could have mixed, fixed maturity dates. You can do a bunch of different things. So, you know, I feel like you know I'm biased, obviously, for Frax, but like Frax is mm-hmm. positioning itself to really take advantage of you know this base yield that you talked about with uh, eat staking mm-hmm. and then having all the financial tools to like get the most capital efficiency, the most bang for your buck, bang for your fracks. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I'm I just feel, thinking here. It's like, mm-hmm. No, I, just, I, I feel very, very confident in DeFi as we know as a permaple tard. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah I, so I, I, both are, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely both <laughs> the past few years. I, I, mean, I, I, I know, yeah. and I feel like, okay, let me be the bear here and ask a question of how, um, so when I think of this new native yield on the state ETH, right, um, I'm we're going to coin it here first, that's going to be the real, real yield, you know, that's going to be real. the real, the yield, real, real yield, exactly, but baseline how yield. does yeah. ETH having a higher baseline yield forces all of DeFi to, you know, also go up? And you can't just inflate your way into a higher APR, right? It, it has to come like real yield yeah. needs to still carry out. Like how how do you see like you know walk me through the mechanics of how a higher ETH base yield would lead to a higher you know Frax Vault yield or or what have you? Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, let me give one example. Um, take a, a Maker Maker Vault for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Right now, Maker offers very low interest rates, kind of because they have to. Um, you can get, you can borrow on ETH, and the lowest vault rate is like 0.5 or 0.75 percent, or something very low. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And that's on an ETH that earns you nothing. Now, if you are on an ETH that earns you six percent APY, uh, now you're borrowing. Uh, your tolerance for interest rates should increase. And it, it's kind of, I, I don't think a 6% ETH means everything gets 6%, but I think it does mean that people who are doing DeFi and who are doing yield, um, 
that's based around ETH. Now they have more tolerance for spending more money doing other stuff to up their their total APY. For example, if I'm a, if I'm a, if I want to go on a leveraged long because I'm an ETH bull, um, I can borrow Dai or I could borrow Frax or I could borrow you know whatever and buy more ETH. And now I'm leveraged long on ETH because I want to be and I'm also earning uh, really good APY as long as I don't get liquidated, of course. And so there's like just those opportunities exist and those opportunities are, are already built into the DeFi landscape and it'll just immediately it will be, it'll happen. So you're saying basically because I am earning 6% yield on my collateral, I'm willing to pay more on the borrow side because I'm earning mm-hmm. six. Exactly. And, and that, there, now, that would lift yeah. all of the demand. Okay. Exactly. And, and, you know, there's also um, even people who are doing stuff outside of DeFi. If, if I'm taking out mm-hmm. a loan for like real reasons, um, you know, instead of being comfortable taking out a 1% loan on collateral that's earning me nothing, now my collateral is earning me 6%. Maybe I'm comfortable taking up to 4%. Um, you know, that that kind of thing. There, there's There's so many different user stories where now we can understand where people would pay more interest or where protocols would generate more revenue because a big component of what everyone's doing, the base network token, is now uh, natively yield-bearing. And natively in quotes, right? You'll, you're still going to have to stake your ETH. You're still going to have to play around with liquid staking groups. But, mm-hmm. I mean, Lido staked ETH is so integrated into the DeFi ecosystem already. I think it'll only become more integrated. I think there will be more liquid staking drivers that will also become more integrated. It, 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 yeah. it won't be hard to take uh, to liquefy your ETH staking position, keep the yield on it, mm-hmm. and do DeFi stuff with it. Yeah, I actually tweeted this out earlier today. I think the same way everybody hopped on the VE tokenomics train, after Frax, people are going to hop on the Frax ETH, Lido, like staking ETH game after the after the merge and when staking becomes a thing. And once it becomes more than obvious, I think we all see it. We see like, okay, like ETH yield, that's going to be like the baseline for all of DeFi and for all of like, I guess like Web3 in a sense. And like once other protocols realize that, they're going to like, wait a second, we need to come up with our own staking nodes and own like staking validators and stuff like that. And I feel like there's going to be like a real rush to do that, and whether it's they're going to do it like themselves or do it through Lido or through Fraxeth, um, that is a, I guess like a future meta that like may or may not happen. Who knows? But like we'll see. Yeah, and, and I, I mean like, if all of this stuff is true, you're also going to have a l- much higher on-chain activity, which means higher fees, which means higher gas. APY, mm-hmm. higher gas, which means higher APY to the. The validators because they're they're Bigger, confirming the yeah. transactions, they're getting mm-hmm. more tips. I, I mean, we very well could see just some insane um, self fulfilling prophecy. ETH is pumping, yeah. yeah. ETH is pumping because APY is pumping because DeFi is pumping. It could happen. It could happen, yeah. And like one of my, my other one of my other favorite real yield opportunities on chain is options. And like options premiums and stuff and like even having like yield coming from over there on top of like the yield coming from ETH, it really doesn't take that long to have this like massive like snowball effect where it's like, hey, this is its own like life on chain is its own self-sufficient machine that isn't that doesn't really need 
the emissions that existed two years ago. Exactly. There's there. I mean, there's there, yeah. there's many more DeFi products today that are are good enough to have users, and they don't really need any emissions at all. Yeah. Um, to to um, actually like it does, if people don't have any more like comments or questions about DeFi and yield, I would love to get your takes on DAOs and like going into like your DAO knowledge a bit more. I feel like that's like the part of the Web three Trinity that like will hit last. Yeah, definitely. Um, so outside of Vesper, um, I'm the co-founder of a project called Governor DAO. We are a fair launch DAO built around the thesis that decentralization done right is really good. It's hard to do it right, and we help projects do it. Um, that looks like kind of a, a smorgasbord of consulting style. We'll help you with your governance. We'll help you with your tokenomics. We'll help launch your smart contracts. We also have some proprietary build-outs and problems that a lot of people see. We have a, a civil resistance product that lets you human gate uh, your project for democratic voting or whatever. That's the elevator pitch. Um, but the reason why I got involved with Governor Dow is that I've always been enamored with um, the prospect of, of what a true Dow standard would look like. Um, my background in DAOs as a, say, Dow academia is actually a very, a very interesting uh, foundation. I got really into DAOs through an economics course I was taking in college, Marxist economics. And I got really into DAOs because I wrote a final report on the Marxist um, assessment of cryptocurrency. Basically, is there some angle of crypto that makes sense from a Marxist point of view? And I got onto DAOs as the end-all, be-all not because DAOs are socialist utopia, but the notion of uh, Marxism as Marxism versus capitalism is is a competition between um, different ways to produce different outputs. And Marxism on paper is great and it makes people feel connected to their work, but capitalism doesn't care about your feelings. Um, the reason why this ties into DAOs is because the problem with why we're all capitalists and not socialists is because the the capitalist the capitalist urge to drive your marginal cost as close to zero as possible to scale to produce to you know to outcompete that's not something that a, a socialist co-op can compete with now in a in a working down model you have this entirely different way different from both socialism and capitalism you have this way to produce where people opt in to get behind the things they enjoy. A lot of what is done is automated in code. A lot of the input costs in terms of, of uh, expensive and human, not perfect executives or managers or whatever, that gets replaced by the smart contract itself or it gets replaced by people who opt in to participate in this doubt. They don't need to earn a salary because they are owners of the of the group and their good work translates to a better investment. We're a long ways away from DAOs being able to outproduce uh, a standard corporation, at least in the real world. Maybe there's some, uh, some different um, scenarios in crypto where you could make that argument. But uh, 
I think we definitely will see that in the future. I think once people get the formula right, um, if people can get the formula right, a, 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 a well-oiled DAO should always outcompete a well-oiled corporation 10 times out of 10 because it's it's a smarter, more effective approach to production as a whole. If that If someone gets that formula right, it's going to totally change the entire way the world operates. And it's going to be, in my opinion, my biggest crypto thesis is that DAOs can enable post-capitalist future, whatever that looks like, the Taoist future, so to speak. Um, that's something that's probably decades away. But, you know, if the, if, the, if the values of the Tao can actually be created in real life, if it can actually work the way people want it to work, um, it, it is, in my opinion, the best response to something that works better than a corporation and feels better than a corporation which socialist, uh, socialism, Marxism, it just feels better than a corporation. It, it's not going to outcompete. Um, so I'm like, I, I'm totally pie in the sky on DAOs. Um, you know, people, it, it, it's kind of a mixed bag in crypto space today, but I mean, it, that's DAOs today. I don't think DAOs today are great. I think most DAOs today absolutely suck. Someone, one person, <laughs> one group needs to get it right. And there's thousands of people trying it one person's going to get all these it right. different experiments. There's all these different experiments. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to ask, like, have you thought about what goes into this formula for like the zero to one DAO that is like, not only like feels better than a corporation in traditional structure that actually is like, do you think there are like elements that have been gotten right before? And do you see like these elements, like mostly on chain or mm -hmm. off chain or both? I think, um, the biggest thing for me is that Taoism is is a spectrum the same way that decentralization is. Too often people misconstrue it as an either or. You're centralized or not. You're a Tao or you're not. And in the Tao conversation, it's like you're either a kumbaya circle or you're a direct, you're an absolute dictatorship. Realistically, there's this entire universe of ways to organize in between. And somewhere mm -hmm. is the optimal way. I think early on in DAOs in the zero to one phase, um, there needs to be uh, some planned obsolescence of leadership, meaning that in the zero to one phase, you really do still need to have some people who are manning the helm, who have the vision, they have the passion, they know what to do, and they execute it. Do that with some plan to... Uh, iteratively transfer ownership and responsibility and distribute and decentralize over time once you're at one to get from one to a hundred. I think mm -hmm. too often is uh, DAOs try to get it perfect right at the start. Um, and perfect decentralization is a privilege for very um, well-established, mature organizations of all kinds, uh, DAOs or otherwise. Um mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I think there's a there's more pragmatic approaches that some projects are exploring um, of having clearly well-defined leadership and responsibility and administrative privilege, a plan for alleviating them, and also a system where token holders have some um, some say over what that leadership looks like without being the leaders themselves. So like, for example, like you don't want a thousand token holders to be responsible for like 
whatever, creating your business plan. Um, you want one expert to do that, but you can have the thousand token holders assess whether they did a good job or not. Or if over the course of several months, the person who said they were going to do this stuff did actually do this stuff. And if they fail to get approval, having some uh, structured replacement plan. Basically, I, at least in Governor Dow, something we're, we're building towards is having clearly dis- defined uh, administrative or, or responsibilities um, and having clearly defined processes for token holders to either thumbs up or thumbs down the people in those positions at recurring intervals. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I think understanding that a DAO doesn't have to be a kumbaya circle and figuring out what yeah. that perfect um, what that what that perfect balance is and maybe it starts closer to a dictatorship and it ends closer to a kumbaya circle projects that are doing that well i i think will have a huge impact on the space yeah no i go i'm thinking about what um joe DeLong said uh during his denver speech um uh, about like hierarchies form naturally whether you like it or not and when you don't have hierarchies that's when like maybe like not the best actors go and mm-hmm. take the place of leadership so i think like this idea of like kumbaya is not only like impossible but could be even harmful like in the beginning you need like right. you know a leadership with set direction and like hierarchy is not necessarily a bad thing like hierarchy is just how people organize themselves and how nature organizes itself so mm-hmm. it's like things aren't a free for all there's like a flow of direction yeah. and like i think it's really important that the hierarchies are fluid especially especially if like somebody's not doing their job like there's like the proper like you know levels and like procedures to like replace them and whatnot Mm -hmm. um is there i guess like how have you like structured governor dow like how how are you like building governor dow in this direction of like you know the perfect dow yeah so you know a lot of where we're at and where we're going with governor dow is working back from initially launching as let's be a kumbaya circle because we i didn't know any better we didn't know any better understanding that you really do need to have some people who are taking the reins myself and others and a lot of what we're building towards is building stuff that will live without us into the future so, for example, we have our, our, our flagship technology, Proof of Existence. That, that's the Anon Civil Resistance universal solution where you sign up once and then any protocol, any contract, any developer, whatever, that wants to uh, human gate or, or limit something to one per person or whatever, they just check for which wallets have signed up. We have that now built um, where people can uh, register and enroll um, totally uh, totally automatic. We don't have to do anything. You go in, you sign up, we have bots that, that process the registration, and then in intervals, pass a transaction on-chain, uh, they pass a Merkle route, they compile the recent signups into a Merkle route, pass an on-chain, and then those people go back and mint their own token. The token holders, right now it's free to sign up, but eventually the token holders, the governor out token holders, they'll be able to vote to set their own monetary policy there. And there's also a referral aspect of it. So governor out token holders can refer people once it costs money, refer their friends to sign up, get a, a split of the revenue. Um, and they're also voting on how much it costs to sign up. They're voting on a price curve or a set price or yada, yada, yada. 
trying to build as much as we can like that where stuff can just exist on its own and the token holders on their own can interact with it as much as they want that's a big focus for what we're doing um some of the stuff so like building yeah yeah uh, go ahead uh, some of the stuff is going to have to stay with privileged response uh privileged responsibilities working with new projects and hopping on phone calls and working out you know legal details and stuff like that 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 has to be someone who's done it a whole bunch of times but um the the next element is once we better formalize what all of these different roles are going to be into the future one day down the road i would love governor to be in a position where everything is voted or elected upon or, or people have reviews you know more so like a traditional corporation i guess where you have like a board of directors who the ceo right the the ceo's boss is the board of directors and the board of directors determines whether they're doing a good job or not or whether they replace them same with some of the other executive uh leadership um the token holders should have that responsibility to say am i doing a good job or am i doing a bad job we want to replace uh, Jeff, and this is who we want to replace him with. I think that's the last piece of, of the puzzle. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of this idea of governance minimization and creating products and like protocols and primitives that can basically live on without the original builders mm -hmm. that just kind of exist in in sort of like a public goods capacity that anybody can like utilize mm -hmm. for you know however they want. Um, and like you said, it's definitely a spectrum, like some things like they can just live on, but like other things need to be more hands on, like, especially like business development and like reaching out and marketing and like, you know, you need, you need some voices mm -hmm. out there to like get people to know what's going on, especially whether it's with like government DAO or with us, like Frax DAO and, and whatnot. Um, Kit, what are your thoughts? I know DAOs aren't really your area, Kit, but like, what are your thoughts on like this, this conversation so far? Man, I always come back to like, just do the work, meaning like, just do the work. I always just do the work. Like DAOs, like regardless, for example, Fraximulus and this flywheel pod, right? Like, I didn't really care that it was a DAO or not a DAO, but I know that Frax, which I really believed in its product, a stable coin. And I do know that kind of marketing and communication is not its greatest strengths. So I'm going to step up and do something about it. So I'm just going to do the work. Yeah. And that's the approach I take and a lot of the, you know, big brain philosophical concepts of how the DAO should work and how human organization or coordination should work. I'm just going to let that play out. And I feel like folks who do the work, it's going to prove out that model anyways. And yeah. that's kind of my view for it. Yeah, it's like the difference between like people that are in the world of theory and academia and like, oh, like, how should a DAO also look like this and that like how but like and then actually like in practice and like okay like what how does a DAO actually function how do you like decide where funds are dispersed that's actually like what the state does the state decides where resources are directed the DAO decides where its treasury is directed um you know and it's interesting yeah. to see the beginnings of like how like every community and every DAO is different um, you know, my personal experience being a protocol politician of sorts, first at Gelato trying to get things approved, and then uh, with, within the Frax community, um, every community is different. You have to, there's, um, you know, certain, like, stakeholders and people that hold more power than others, whether they're, like, influential members within the community, like, whether they're, like, super active on message boards, 
or like you know they just held like a large bag and this and that but like all in all what matters most is like people just care and people are just like built, thinking long term and building for the future um and you know it doesn't really you know in the beginning like it's all about like doing the work and like once you have like a proper foundation whether it's like 10 people or 100 people working on it like that's when like things can really bloom and blossom yeah I agree. I just yeah, also feel like DAO yeah. cannot operate on a volunteer basis. You know, like if you do it on a volunteer basis, you're going to get volunteer level type of results. And yeah. that's why I really like the grant yeah. stuff that the DAOs do. Like you kind of got to pay people for their work and their time, um, you know, but mm -hmm. you can also expect people to just work for fun. I feel like a, a large trend in DAOs is like you have a new community member come in, they're highly motivated, they crush us for like two weeks, three weeks, and then they kind of fizzle out. Like, yeah, I feel like a lot of that uh, potential could be channeled better, managed better, and just really uh, put it into more productive efforts. Yeah, I mean, that's among yeah. the open problems that someone's gonna get it right and then everyone's gonna know how to do it. I don't, I don't know if yep. there's a, a great a great example just yet. Mm. Just yet, but just maybe yet, soon. Just yet, they yeah, just yet. Yeah, just like either in yet. DeFi or NFTs, yeah. like first slowly, then all at once. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, um, we're reaching the uh, end of this flywheel edition, and uh, we'd like to do like a little bit of a you know fi uh, rapid fire Lightning questions round. to uh, yes. with every guest. Lightning okay. round. I'll, go, I'll, lightning I'll round. try to keep my comments short. All right. So first question is, when did you first touch the chain? What was your virgin crypto experience? Sexes don't count. Yeah. Um, August 2013, I found out about a Minecraft casino that used Bitcoin as the currency. And uh, <laughs> I found out you could, you could gamble online when you're 15 years old and no one asked you how old you were. DJ. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally almost a decade ago. Almost a decade ago. Yeah. Wow. Max DJ. Okay. Uh, um, second question. Uh, Dave, you want to go? Um, yeah. So um, what is your biggest regret uh, on chain? Our biggest regret like in your ex decade long experience in this game? Oh, man. That is a tough one. Um, <laughs> I'll say I, I bought a, uh, I mean, I don't know if this is really a regret, but um, it's the best thing I can think of. I bought my first computer with Bitcoin uh, in 2015. Um, and that's my, I have it sitting over there collecting dust. It's my $100,000 computer. Oh it was, wow! I nice. bought it when Bitcoin Bitcoin was like two hundred fifty dollars when I bought it. Did you get it with your Minecraft casino winnings? Some Minecraft casino winnings um, that I converted into poker and <laughs> some miscellaneous freelance work for crypto. Wow! Yeah. Wow! Really okay. living on you were living on the Bitcoin blockchain. I was. <laughs> you really were okay, and then um. I guess the other question is, if you weren't working in crypto, what would you be doing instead? Um, the only other job I've had was DoorDash. Um, 
I might go back to doing that. It was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bear market blues. I don't. I mean, I don't know if I have many skills that translate outside of crypto. I I, I think I'd just be depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so outside of crypto, uh, what do you like to do in your free time? Uh, I love to surf. I go. My girlfriend lives here, close to me in LA. We go surfing a lot. Uh, I like to play video games. I'm sure, that's a common answer. Um, and I'm a big foodie. I like to try different restaurants. I like to cook when I get the time. Um, yeah, that's about it. What's your favorite restaurant in LA, or a restaurant in LA that you really liked recently? Um, I really like Wabion Rose. Um, it's close close by to mm. us here. Have you been? Have you guys been? Lobby no, on Rose. Yeah. no not yet. it's like a it's like a, a posh modern fusion sushi type plate uh, but it's very good big fan okay well, i went Rose. to this place we called benny's the other day that was like a fusion place that was good in a similar vein Maybe we should have a f- yeah i mean i'm similar vein um bell's beach house you guys been there under the venice side yeah i think it was bell is that was that near the bright moments? Yeah, yeah, that's where I went. Not oh, Benny's Bells. Okay. Yeah, Bells is my other favorite restaurant. I, I will always up to go to Bells. Dude, I'm down. Okay. Dude, I've never they been had to the best caramelized onion burgers. Chef Fractionless meet up at Bells. Dude, I'm down. Let's plan it out. <laughs> All right. Well, Green Jeff, thank you for coming on. It's been a really knowledgeable hour. I feel like we've really covered all, all the, the trifecta yeah. of Web3 here. And uh, we're excited to have you on again in the future. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for having yeah, me, guys. That, that was awesome. Peace, man. Peace. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. That was the conclusion of another episode of Flywheel with Mr. Green Jeff, where we go into everything Web3 from DeFi to NFTs to DAOs. And Kit, do you have any final thoughts? Like I said, man, my favorite parts is when I can get, you know, in the weeds in the DeFi with the uh, you know, the guests coming on and they actually kind of matches our enthusiasm, but also our knowledge about the space. And I, I, I really think uh, Vesper is lucky to have Green Jeff on their team. Yeah, I know you're excited. I know I took a step back and just like <laughs> let you and Jeff just go off on the numbers. I'm just like, all right, hands off the wheel here. I'll wait to be a word so later when we get into DAOs. And, you know, I really enjoyed that part. Um, I'm really excited to see, you know, how people think of this episode. And you know, we encourage people to like leave their comments on either in the comment section on YouTube or on Twitter. Like we always love to get a conversation going. Um, and that's it for this time. Uh, we'll see you next time. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at flywheel pod. Same thing with telegram. You can follow me on Twitter at DeFi Dave 22. You can follow me on Twitter at zero X capital underscore K. And then we'll see you next time. Fuck. Peace.